Welcome to part two of the Henrietta Mass Murders, the updated timeline. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. So in 2017, right before Nailani took the case as the DA for Caitlin Babb's case and for the case against McFadden, a different DA had the case. And whether he was permanently assigned or just temporarily until Nailani took it, he had gone in for one of the initial hearings. His name is DA Ryan Ferguson. And that was on sometime in November, I believe, but shortly before Nailani took over. And based on whatever occurred there, he was removed and he also left the DA's office. And I don't know if he left the DA's office by choice or if he was made to leave, but he's the only person who's come forward aside from Larry Edwards, who's the current elected DA there in Muskogee and commented on the case. And he highlighted the fact that within a month of having anything to do with McFadden's case, he was gone. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. So then in 2018, They had the highest incarceration rate in the U.S. In January, on the 17th, LaDonna Jean McFadden texts Caitlin Lindsay Babb, who's 18 at the time, saying, OMG, I'm so sorry. I don't even know what to say. I will make sure he quits bothering you like that all that I can. What was that in response to? He had been sending Caitlin messages, like threatening her and and calling her, trying to get her to drop the case. You know, he wanted the case to go away. Yeah. And how did LaDonna find out about that? Because she regularly talked to McFadden. So it was almost like they were tag teaming. So the next day on January 18th, LaDonna texts Caitlin and says, not blaming you, just told him it was not a good relationship if one of you is doing something wrong. Um, He asked if you can talk to him at least one time. Now, this message was written because... Caitlin wasn't wanting to talk to McFadden and she had been letting him know that. And when she would let him know that he would give her a hard time as to why they should talk and different things of that nature. And as they're going back and forth, you know, he's speaking to his mom very regularly. And then his mom is turning around and relaying things to Caitlin of what she believes about what's happening and whether or not she thinks they should talk or what McFadden's saying. So no matter what Caitlin does, she can't keep McFadden away from her. Cause she's being double teamed yeah. by LaDonna and by Jesse. Right. Then on January 30th, a non-issue preliminary hearing is conducted. 
uh, with his attorney and the judge. So this is something that takes place basically where not everybody's involved. Then on February 15th, LaDonna texts Caitlin again. So this time she's saying, let me think on it a minute about contacting them. I haven't spoke to him since the weekend. He started talking some crap that I told him I didn't want to hear. So I hung up on him, not trying to get in your business, but he said, you won't tell him how you feel or whatever. It just drives me nuts that she's as involved as she is and at the consistency that she is. It's not even like something significant happened and she just really felt compelled to get involved, but she's constantly doing it. Yeah. I don't understand how the DA didn't see that as tampering. Was the DA aware of, of these communications from LaDonna? I'm pretty sure because, you know, communication was going back and forth about about the threatening letters with, between McFadden. And see, and part of this is, that, a matter of fact, prior to this conversation, one of the things that had occurred was that McFadden wouldn't leave her alone. Yeah. And he was calling her on the phone and threatening her. And, and harassing s- her. And, right. Yeah, and, but, but couldn't you get a, a restraining order or a no contact order or... Shouldn't the DA have recommended any of those things? They told her to contact ODOC and that ODOC could do some kind of blocking in their system to block Caitlin's number from being called. But that never took place. That never happened. So she continued to be contacted by him. I feel like there's another failure there. Oh, absolutely. So many, so many failures. So then on March 29th, LaDonna contacts Caitlin, who's 18 at this point, And this is what she tells her. Now, remember Baker, we were talking about Baker. She says, hey, the attorney said if your grandparents did not show up, there'd be a good chance that they would drop the case and they haven't been subpoenaed to appear. How does she know that they haven't been subpoenaed? Who's telling her, hey, the grandparents haven't been subpoenaed. So to me, that tells me you're already planning on, oh, we got the subpoenas too late or the subpoenas were sent out too late. So let's go ahead and try to get a continuance based on that. Like there's a method to that madness there. Mm -hmm. What else does she say? So she says, I just wish that you'd help out this one last time. I would be grateful for any way you could help. Sorry for all I've asked, but I'm just ready to have Jesse home. And it would tear me up to have him get more time. Another manipulation from LaDonna. Absolutely. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. You know, one of the things that Caitlin shared with me is that she's gotten a lot of flack from people in talking to McFadden and saying things like, You know, like almost like, hey, you're not a dummy, even though you were 15, like you knew what you were doing or you knew what was happening. And what people don't understand is that not only are adults manipulated, men are manipulated. So this girl's being manipulated and not just by him. She's being manipulated by his mother at the same time. So my question is, can she be charged with anything? I hope so. I truly hope so. Put her ass in jail. So then on April 4th, Don F. Baker, now mind you, this was March 29th, March 29th, and the subpoena hasn't gone out, March 29th, and LaDonna's reaching out to Caitlin, and Caitlin isn't biting, and then guess what happens? Less than a week later, on April 4th, Don F. Baker files a motion for continuance, and guess what his reason is? He's going to be out of state. So he asked for a delay, and the delay is a 76-day delay. Wow. That's the first motion for continuance that he files. So then on April 11th, 
they receive a subpoena. So basically when, you know, when you file a continuance, it's accepted and they push it through, then they go through the whole process of doing the subpoena and the habeas corpus again for the witnesses and then whoever the, you know, the inmate is to notify them of the next hearing. So that's what takes place on the 11th, a subpoena and a habeas corpus. Then on April 17th, Holly, who's 30 at the time, and Joseph or Joe Emery Guest have a vehicle loan origination or UCC initiation together in Westville, Oklahoma with People's Bank. Why do we throw that in there? Why is that important? That's important because this lets us know that during this time, not only is Holly married, but they have some financial things going on during this year. And it's important for the timeline because it lets us know where she's at during the timeline and what's happening. And mind you, this is 2018. So we know that in 2018, Holly's talking to to Jesse. Yeah. She's already having a relationship with Jesse. And oh, by the way, she's buying a car with Joe. Right. And I don't know what anybody thinks about that, but I know what I think. I don't, I don't want nobody buying a car with me if they're off with somebody else. Yeah. And my question is, did Joe know that she was having the secret relationship or was he in the dark? Was he a victim of her manipulation? Possibly, quite possibly. And just so that you're aware, Westville, the Westville area is where her family is at. Right. So. So Westville, what's, what state is that in? That's Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma, Westville. Yeah. Okay. And you know, I don't know how far Westville is from Henrietta. I don't think it's real close to Henrietta. Yeah. But it is in Oklahoma. Okay. So then between May 3rd, 2018 and January 15th, 2023, search records indicate that LaDonna McFadden, McFadden's mom, was employed starting in May of 2018 at the Pittsburgh County Courthouse, the same courthouse where McFadden was convicted, sentenced, and ultimately released. So that's very interesting to know that LaDonna was working at the courthouse. Right. We already know how she's treating a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old who her son's grooming and assaulting how she's treating that person. What is she doing with his case when she's working at the courthouse that he was convicted at for the first degree rape? What is she doing with all of that? And also the courthouse where they've already been plagued with all kinds of issues, all kinds of clerk issues and clerks, DAs, everything, everything. So then on June 27th of 2018, another motion for continuance is filed. This is number two. And it's filed by Don F. Baker, McFadden's attorney, with the reason unknown. This document didn't appear. And the same day as the scheduled preliminary hearing. So despite a subpoena being issued two and a half months earlier, suddenly the same day of the hearing, he's like, hey, guys, sorry, we can't make it. Hey, we have a reason. We want to continue this. So he already had done a 70-something day delay to get to this date. And then the day of, he's saying, hey, we need another continuance. Yeah. So you already did one for more than 60 days away. Now you've gotten to that day, not even within days before, but that day to say, hey, we want to do another continuance. Right. And this time they stretch it out. This is his second continuance and they stretch it out 123 days from that day. Wow. So then on July 6th, they mail out the subpoenas and everything again. So not long after, you know, maybe a week and a half after he did his continuance, they send out the subpoena and everything. And then on August 6th, so just a month later, there's a motion for continuance number three filed by Don F. Baker. And this one says medical 12 weeks. I don't know what the medical was for because this was before he got real sick. So I'm not sure what took place at that point in time, but um, he asked for a continuance. So, 
and that continuance was 12 weeks. And I, you know, and honestly, I would think that if you're asking for continuance that long, that far away, that should also be a flag to say, hey, you need to have somebody come step in for you because we can't allow for you to stretch a case out past this far, whatever the case may be. Right. So then on August 8th, so he got, he gets that continuance, which is continuance number three. And on August 8th, they send out the subpoenas and the habeas corpus again. So to make sure everybody's aware of the new court date. Then on November 27th, LaDonna messages Caitlin and says, Jesse asked that you unblock him so he can talk to you before he goes to court. He leaves early in the morning. This is on the 27th. That's crazy that she's continuing to badger the witness. Absolutely. That should be illegal. She should be charged. She 100% should be charged. Yeah. Then on November 29th, so this is the day after the hearing, because remember how she says he's going to be there the next day? Yeah. So on November 29th, the hearing is not conducted due to a motion for continuance number four. So Jesse can't reach Caitlin, and suddenly there's a continuance. Right. So obviously LaDonna's tried to push her. Jesse's tried to push her. She blocks him. And so he's like, hey, attorney, can't get her to drop the case. All right, we'll go ahead and file a motion for continuance. But in this one, this one's a little different because this one is the first continuance that's initiated by the state. Yes, and we don't know why. Do so, we know who? Was this late Nailani who who pushed this one back? I don't want to say that it is Nailani. Um, you would think that she would be the mm. only one that could that could do it. But I'm not positive. And what's funny is that for this particular one, he objects. And that's not his nature. Why would he object to a continuance? So very strange to me. Yeah, that uh, this is very strange. But you know, that's a good way to throw the pattern off. Yeah, yeah, to be like, well, I objected to this one. Guess what? What? There's political donations from the bakers to judges to the governor. Yeah. What about to the DA? Do you donate to the DA? Yeah, you can for their yeah their, for their their campaign. Quite possibly. So now we've passed that case that couldn't be held. So that was on November 29th. On December 10th, so just a couple weeks later, LaDonna texts Caitlin. She says, hey, are you okay? I saw a post about you being upset. I know we don't have any connection now, but wanted to let you know that I still care about you. Let me know if there's anything I can do. And just remember, if it's about a man, it will pass. You will fall in love and get your heart broken many times before you find the one that is right for you. I don't mean to minimize anything that you're going through, but I've been hurt several times and I felt like it was the end of the world. I felt like life was not worth living. Now, I kind of find a little bit of undertones in there, like pushing somebody to, hey, is life actually worth not living? But not just that. This is a thing that people do when they're grooming and she's trying to make a connection with her and make her feel like she cares. Yeah. And it's manipulative. And then just a little past a week after that, so that's LaDonna who's communicating with Caitlin. Now, Caitlin receives a threatening letter from McFadden on December 18th. So when she gets that threatening letter from McFadden, her grandmother decides to write Nailani, let Nailani know that Caitlin received a threatening letter. And one of the things that he did in this letter, so he's 35 at this point, is he's made the letter not only difficult to read, but he also changed his name to conceal the fact that the letter was from him because he knew that he wasn't supposed to be writing her. Right. And obviously his mom contacting her isn't just working. before. Yeah, it's not working. So he's like he's he's getting desperate to try to pressure her to do something different other than what she's doing. So that same day, um, Nailani was actually really quick to write her back. Caitlin's 19 at this point. 
And she tells her that the file's on her desk and she wants to do something with it and references having luck in um, getting Caitlin to speak with her. So one thing that I want to share with you guys is that during this process and understand that Caitlin's young, right? During this process of going back and forth with McFadden trying to talk her into dropping the case or pushing the case, her mom trying to talk her into dropping the case or pushing the case, that at certain points, she was feeling so overwhelmed that there was one point where she actually drove to Muskogee from where she lived and told them, I don't want to pursue the case. Now, the DA doesn't need her to pursue the case. Is it better to have her? Yeah, because she's a witness. Right. But they have digital evidence and they have physical evidence. So they don't need her to prosecute, prosecute the case. But he's trying to convince her not to go through with the case. So... During these different points in time, there was some times where maybe Caitlin wasn't wanting to talk to the DA because she's like, I just want this thing to go away at this point, getting uh, a lot of pressure. Not only that, but she was she was also being harassed and she's being threatened. She was being followed. All these things that were going on in her life that she just wanted to get away from. And at one point she thought, if I just let it go, it'll just all go away. Right. You know, and I want you guys to think about that for a minute, you know, as you listen to this, because you think no big deal. But when you've got somebody who's calling you on the phone and saying, hey, I know you have somebody at your house. I know this is what their car looks like. I know this is their name. I'm going to take them out. Think about that. Or think about, hey, I know where your family lives. And listen, if this doesn't go away, I'm going to do something to your family. How long do you think that you could take that before you cave? Right. This is happening over and over and over again. Sometime in 2019, D.A. Neilani Ching is awarded the Mitch Sperry Award for Outstanding Prosecutor, and that has to be recommended. And guess who that's recommended by? Her boss. Mm. Then she also gets another award, and that award is the Champion of Children Award for her advocacy with children of abuse and sexual assault. This is despite the fact that under her purview, a violent sex offender case was pushed 231 days, almost already a year at this point in time. She's receiving an award. And I don't know that I would put that on Neilani per se. I don't, I don't know that it's her fault that the case is being pushed, although it doesn't really seem like she's doing very much to not have it pushed. She tried to get it, the case accelerated before she left, but, but I don't know that that's completely her fault that it's being pushed that far out and how much control she would actually have over the timeline of that case. Just my, not my two cents on it. And one thing for me to point out is that she was recruited by Orville Logue, who's the elected DA yeah. from Tulsa. So she was in Tulsa at the DA's office and was recruited by him to come to Muskogee and be his first DEA. So the DA's office can have people in there, attorneys who they bring in to work as DAs, and they're not elected. They don't have to be elected. You can hire them. And then you have your, the only person who's elected is the main DA. And then his first DA, his first assistant DA is his right-hand person. So that's the person who, if something happens to him, like the vice president, that person takes that spot. Or if they take a position in the middle of their term, that person takes their spot. Yeah. And that was her. So he recruited her. So then when you think about these different things that take place, was she conflicted? Was she trying to do the right thing? And then she was being thrown an award. Hey, I recommended you for this award. Or hey, remember, I, I recruited you. I brought you in. That could very well be the case. So then in January 2nd, McFadden and Caitlin Babb's family and Caitlin all receive a subpoena in a habeas corpus for the next hearing. And one thing about this particular melling is that 
they weren't sent out for a while. They were sent out late. So on January 14th, the DA requested continuance. So this is the second time that the DA requested continuance. And at this point, it's been pushed 287 days. Almost a year. So almost like they sent out the subpoenas late on purpose and used that as a reason to push it. But in none of the paperwork does it indicate why the DA is pushing or the state is pushing for continuance. There's no paperwork anywhere that indicates. And it should. Mm. That should be part of the case. So then on January 24th, the hearing that they were supposed to have is not conducted. And that was due to um, the motion for continuance that is filed by Don F. Baker. And the reason is unknown. The document wasn't available. And this was for a hearing that was supposed to take place. And it was passed again further for a continuance. And at this point, because he of how far he passed it, it was passed to where there's more than a 300-day delay. So again, you know, almost a year. So then on March 25th, um, a preliminary hearing is conducted with an S. Flores standing in for Don F. Baker. It's the only time that you'll see this S. Flores. I didn't see him any other time throughout the case, but he stood in for Don F. Baker. So he was the attorney for McFadden. And during that hearing, there was testimony and the state rested their case. So based on whatever occurred during that time. And during that hearing, they did a request for a demurmer, which was overruled. And basically what a demurmer is, is it's kind of a last ditch effort to try to have a case thrown out when you feel like it's stretched too far or past a certain limit or something of that nature. So it was an attempt by the defense to try to have the case thrown out. So they're trying to squash the case. Right. Without having the actual trial. Right. But that didn't happen. And then the DA requests a continuance, third for the state and sixth total. In April, McFadden, who's 35 at the time, threatens Caitlin for the second time via written communication. So the first time we talked about earlier where Nailani was contacted by grandma, again, McFadden threatens her again. So he threatens her again. So then on April 25th, and mind you, that's in April. So then sometime around April 25th, there's another hearing that's not conducted because, of course, another motion for continuance is filed by the DA. No reason and nothing can be found. Caitlin and her grandparents are not informed as to why. Nobody's telling them, hey, guys, we're not having this hearing because something, something, something. Nothing from them. So then on May 9th, there's another motion for continuance, and it's filed by Don F. Baker. And the reason? He's going to be out of state. This is 16 days prior to the scheduled court appearance that they have. And this is despite a subpoena being issued 14 days earlier and he asked for it to be moved. So it's moved. And at this point in time, it's moved a total of 376 days at this point in time. So that means that she's already waited more than a year to get justice and still has not. For some reason, Oklahoma hasn't allowed for her to have justice for over a year at this point in time. We haven't even got to the point of the arraignment. We're still trying to arraign this case. Right, because the DCA is an arraignment. So on June 6th, the district court arraignment takes place, and McFadden pleads not guilty, and there's a mutual discovery order. So I don't know if they did this mutual discovery order because the prosecution thought that Baker had come up with something. I'm sure he was saying he did. And so there was a mutual request for um, a discovery order, basically, so that both parties would have to share what it is that they have in their little magic hats. And during this time, for this particular date, which is interesting, Nailani Ching is not there. 
And so on this date, there's a DA that's standing in and it's a DA Sean Waters, even though Nailani was her DA. So the one time when Nailani's not there is when this doesn't get pushed. Right. That's interesting. It's very interesting. So then in June of this same year, McFadden, who's 35 at the time, threatens Caitlin, who's 19 at the time, for the third time via written communication. McFadden again attempts to conceal the fact that the letter was from him, so he's trying to to do this in a way where they can't use it against him. Then on June 19th, after McFadden's third written communication threatening Caitlin, her grandma decides to contact Nailani again. So she contacts Nailani to report the second and third letters. Cause remember he had written one, yeah. she notified her and now he's written a second and a third. So she's like, Hey man, what's going on? Like right. he's still calling her. He's still writing her. Like she's still getting harassed. You know, what can you guys do about it? So on June 21st, there's a filing that's initiated more than likely from the Muskogee County DA on the case concerning new bad evidence intended to be introduced. Now, the reason that I assume that, it doesn't say defense on it, and it doesn't say DA on it, but what it does indicate is that more than likely the the new bad evidence is the evidence for the letters, the first, second, and third letter. Mm. So then on July 24th, a motion for discovery is filed a month later. So he waited an entire month to say, hey guys, I'd like to see whatever this new evidence is. So he files a motion for discovery, and then on August 9th, there's a disposition docket indicating that there was some kind of gathering that took place, probably just with the attorney in the DA's office. So they probably meant it could have been over the discovery, I'm not sure, because it doesn't indicate it in the system, and there's no documentation of it, but they list minutes, and minutes are generated based on some type of hearing or something that took place. Right. So then on August 19th, they issue a habeas corpus. Um, On August 20th, they issue a subpoena, and that's for the next hearing that they're supposed to have. On September 4th of the same year, there's a motion to accelerate number one for jury trial. So this is when we start seeing, in September, is where Nailani first starts to try to accelerate the jury trial, knowing that she's taking a federal position the beginning of the new year. So the beginning of 2020, she knows she's going to be gone. So she's trying to accelerate the jury trial so that she can close out the case before she leaves. Mm -hmm. So then on September 13th, a filing is initiated more than likely due to the, the bad evidence. So this is the, the second one that's requested saying, Hey, we're going to introduce more evidence. Then on September 25th, There's another continuance filed, and the reason is unknown, and it's unknown as to who filed it. It's not indicated, and there's no records that can be found on it. But the jury trial is reset, so then it's pushed to December 11th, 2019. Obviously, Nailani will not be there. Yeah. September 30th, jury trial number one is not conducted. That was the first date that it was scheduled for, and um, it's rescheduled for February 5th, 2020. Nailani definitely won't be there. Then on November 1st, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt approved 527 prisoner commutations, which are early release or sentence reductions. Then just a few days later, Oklahoma made U.S. history when it released 462 prisoners in a single day. Why is this important? This is important because Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt had a platform while running for governor that 
based on how we talked about earlier in 2018, they had the highest incarceration rate in the U.S. He wanted to lower the incarceration rate. So this was part of his prison reform plan. It's soft on crime prison reform. (laughs) So then on December 11th, um, this was when they had rescheduled the trial and it's not conducted. A continuance is filed. Again, no indication as to why. And the jury trial is rescheduled for a later date. On December 31st, DA Nilani Ching with the Muskogee County DA's office has represented the state in Caitlin Babb for a total of two years, one month, and two days. Leaves unannounced. There's no handoff conducted, and Caitlin and her family are completely unaware. DA Nilani Ching leaves the Muskogee County DA's office promoted to an assistant U.S. attorney or federal prosecutor. There's no appointment and no press on her move. So those things are a little bit odd. The reason that we say December 31st, because I actually believe that she left a little bit before that, but the way her resume is listed um, and the way that she's listed on LinkedIn, it indicates that she was at the DA's office through the end of 2019. However, sometime in November, there was some communication between Caitlin Babb's family and Nailani, and they indicated that Nailani was no longer there, and that was in November. So a little bit of a transition period where she wasn't actually there working right yeah. she could have been like had some kind of leave or something like that yeah transitioning and moving from one place to another right so then now we're into 2020 oh man this is the year of covid <laughs> the year of covid so in 2020 on january 3rd a new habeas corpus and subpoenas are, are sent out and um, on january 6th there is a request for discovery and a brief and support filed So I'm not sure what's up with all of these requests for discoveries because it seems like there's not a whole lot of new evidence that came forward other than the letters. So I'm not sure why these discoveries are going back and forth. But again, because there's no indication as to what they are or what they're for, it could quite possibly be that maybe his attorney is saying that he's got something. So that could be it as well. So then later that month on January 23rd, a continuance is filed again, reason unknown, and the jury trials reset this time to March 11th, 2020. Then on February 5th, of course, that was the day that the trial was supposed to be conducted, and it wasn't. And, of course, we don't know why. And then it's rescheduled. So then on March 11th, this is when it was rescheduled for, and it also is not conducted. And there's another continuance filed, also that there's no reason as to why it was rescheduled. Then on March 19th, there's a habeas corpus that goes out. On March 20th, there's a subpoena that goes out for the new court hearing, which is June 17th, 2020. Then June 17th rolls around and the trial is not conducted yet again, a continuance, and we do not know why, but it's pushed to August 11th, 2020. Uh, I will say this is during the height of the initial COVID where everything was shutting down. So a lot of these unknowns could be tied to COVID um, after April. Quite possibly. So then on July 23rd, Sam McCoy and three members of his leadership team are fired within six months of a report to the DA, Carol Iskey, concerning treatment of an inmate in the Okamoki County Jail, starting with Sam McCoy on July 23, 2020. He says that the Okamoki Police Chief, Joe Prentice, and Okamoki County Sheriff, Eddie Rice, told him to mind his own business and keep his mouth shut. And what he had reported to Carol Iskey was a situation that occurred in the jail that the Okmulgee County Sheriff would be responsible for. And it was a situation where an inmate was basically beat. And, of course, they're trying to say 
they were doing the right thing. And he's like, clearly we were not. And he even made the comment like we had been sued before. And he's like, I knew very well that this was not the proper behavior. And so I wanted to let somebody know so that it could be corrected so that we're not put in that situation again. So who is Sam McCoy? He was head of the Okmulgee County Jail at the time. Okay, so Sam McCoy, who was the head of the jail in Okmulgee, is reporting to the DA that there is a human rights violation. Right. And then you have Joe Prentice and Eddie Rice saying, mind your business. Right. That's what's happening here. Right. Okay, I just want to make sure I understood that correctly. And then just so you know, so Eddie Rice is the sheriff for Okmulgee County, and then... Joe Prentice is the police chief for Okmogi, the city. Right. So both of them had responsibility in this situation. But then on August 11th, that this is the next trial that was supposed to take place. It also wasn't conducted, and there's also a continuance filed again. It's now pushed to December. Notice it's pushed to December, which means it's pushed past October when we know that McFadden ends up getting released. So it was pushed late enough so that it can't be used as a reason to keep him in prison. So ODOC reviewed his records in July to see if he would be eligible to be released. It makes sense to me that if his records were reviewed in July, then in August, now they're doing a continuance. And coincidentally, they're moving it to past October so that he can get out before there's a hearing. Right. So on October 30th, um, there is a obtaining cash and merchandise by bogus check and false pretense warrant that's dismissed the same day that McFadden's released. And he's released despite at least three class X infractions and he's not released on bond and there's no probation. So he actually doesn't even get bond until later when right. they figure out he's been released. So knowing that he has an active case that he would typically be arrested for. Right. They allow him to get out. They don't put him on probation and there's no bond. Right. I got and in order to let him out, they had to close out. They had to dismiss that warrant. And right. if you look at the warrant when they dismissed it, which, oh, by the way, has been pulled offline now. You can't find it. Yeah. But I have it. <laughs> they list that it's been dismissed and that it's in the best interest of the state. So it's in the best interest of the state that they dismiss this warrant and let this predator out. Wow. So they let him out, and when they let him out, his first survivor, Crystal Strong, isn't notified. His second survivor, Caitlin Babb, isn't notified. So then on November 3rd, so just a few days later, Caitlin, who's now 21 at this point, and McFadden, who's 37 at this point, he's been released from prison, and on her social media pops up somebody she might know. And lo and behold, it's McFadden. So she, who is fearful of her life because of all the threats she's received and all the pushing and prodding she's received from both McFadden and his mother, she goes crazy looking for, did he get released? So she starts looking him up to try to see like, well, hey, what's going on? Like something's up. And she finds out he's been released. Wow. That's how she found out. That is how she Whose found out. Whose job was it to, to inform her that he was being released? Who dropped the ball here? I don't know who's officially assigned to do that in Oklahoma. Typically, the state determines who's responsible for doing that. But the DA should have been informed. His attorney would have known. And so she should have known. And she should have known days in advance because he should have had a bond hearing, which she should have been included to be at. Right. And that didn't take place. 
So she finds out on November 3rd. So on November 4th, her and her grandmother and everybody is contacting the, the DA's office, trying to get the DA to do something about this. Hey, he's been released. There's no bond. There's no nothing. Like he's just been released out into the public. Like this is an issue. And on November 4th, I believe that their office was closed, but they continued to reach out to him between November 4th and November 12th. On November 10th, there's a bench warrant that's issued and it says failure to appear. And this is in relation to McFadden's release without being taken to county jail. So mm. they initiated this warrant. So when you see this warrant in his records, that's what that warrant is for. Gotcha. During our first initial timeline, we didn't know what that warrant was for. Right. And we thought maybe it was due to him not registering as a sex offender. But now we know that that warrant was issued because he got out and they weren't supposed to let him out. So that was a way of getting him back into the system. But, you know, one of the things that I think they used in order for them to be able to do that is that there was a requirement when he got out of when he had to report specifically to them. It had to do with the terms of him getting out and anything that was open, such as paying court costs or anything like that. And I actually think that that's what they used to generate the warrant and then to in kind of include what was happening here. But right. I think that's actually what they used to generate the warrant. Gotcha. So then on November 12th, the DA, who's Clint Harris at the time, contacts Caitlin's grandma and talks to her about McFadden's release and says that they're issuing a bench warrant for McFadden's arrest. And this is eight days after the initial call to the DA's office. So he contacts her to let her know. And that had taken place. They had already issued the bench warrant two days prior. So that same day, Caitlin, when she hears that they've got the warrant, that afternoon about 2.30 p.m., she calls the county where he's at, which is the county where his mom's house is at, where he's staying when he first gets out. And she tells them, hey, I know that you have this bench warrant and let me give you the guy's address and so she calls him and she gives him his mom's address and um, by that next day so the next day i'm pretty close to the same time um, on november 13 at 206 p.m mcfadden is arrested at his mother ladonna jean mcfadden's house and taken to the muskogee county jail he remains in the muskogee county jail between november 13th and november 17th and he's held on just ten thousand dollar bond wow and i truly do not understand when you have somebody in this type of scenario, why you would have their bond so stinking low. Yeah. It's guaranteed they're going to get out. Yeah. It's a thousand bucks. Yeah. So then on November 17th, of course, he's released from this Muskogee County Jail because he posts bail. In December of that same year, December of 2020, the Websters moved to Oklahoma. December 13th, an emergency protective order is issued to LaDonna Jean McFadden due to an incident with Cody Ray McFadden. And one thing that I just want to point out about that that we've probably talked about before is that when this incident took place, McFadden was there because he's mentioned in the protective order that was filed based on what had occurred. And Cody was really upset. It doesn't say why he was upset, but he was very upset. And he was threatening everybody who was present. And he ended up getting in his car and lighting his car on fire. And one of the things that we have kind of theorized has taken place is based on McFadden's history that he quite possibly molested his brother and by his brother getting out and now being around him now he's older he's an adult he's no longer a kid it's creating some mental issues for him and the things that he's been doing throughout the years all of the going to jail back and forth the arson the abuse treating people bad substance abuse all of those things are indicators of child molestation do we have any evidence that Cody ever went to go visit his brother in prison? 
we can probably get that. That's something that we can probably try to get. Yeah. Um, my guess is going to be that he never did. Yeah, my guess would be that he never did either. And I know that from just from what I know about the case, that Cody and LaDonna McFadden didn't have a very close relationship at all. They didn't. And we don't really know why, right? But we can speculate. You know, it had maybe had to do with, you know, who his father was or how he came into the world, whatever the case is. But when Jesse gets out of prison... And his mother welcomes him with open arms. That could be a point of contention for Cody, especially if our speculation is correct. And he was sexually assaulted by his older brother. And Who was his mom, used to covering things up. Yeah, exactly. And has now like just brought him in with open arms as if, you know, he's uh, all that in the bag of chips. Right. Absolutely. And then at the end of December, so that was on December 13th, on December 22nd was when they were all supposed to go back to court for the final protective order. So you do an emergency protective order, they give it to you right away, and then they don't do the actual protective order unless you show up or at least one of the parties shows up and the judge says, okay, we're going to do this protective order. Neither one of them showed. So then in um, 2021, so now we're to 2021, on January 8th, Pittsburgh County Court Clerk Cynthia Ledford was arrested and... During that time, this is during the time that LaDonna McFadden is working for the Pittsburgh County Courthouse. This case was initially reported in 2020 on June 18th when OSBI was asked for their investigation assistance. Now, I also want to point out that during this particular point in time, June of 2020, if you remember in 2020 was when they were continually pushing the case with Bab. Right now, this isn't the same courthouse, but this is the courthouse where the case is for his first degree rape. Right. So then on January 11th, McFadden, who's 37 at the time, posts a video on TikTok on his mother's property in McAllister. This is the one where he's on the like climbed up on that steel beam. Right. We did try to cross reference that and see if that was actually on the property that that we're all aware of in Henrietta. And it's not. It's on his mom's property in McAllister. Then on January 15th, Lawrence Anderson is released early from prison in Oklahoma. Why is that important? Well, on February 9th, just a few weeks later, Lawrence Anderson kills three people. He killed his neighbor, cut her heart out, cooked it with potatoes, and then tried to give it to his uncle and aunt who lived next door to eat before killing his uncle and his four-year-old granddaughter and then gouging out his aunt's eyes. She ended up living. He was just one of the more than 800 inmates whose sentences were reviewed for commutation in January. Corrections officials actually warned that he was high risk to reoffend, but they still let him out. So just another example of poor prisoner management in terms of prison commutations and early releases. Yes. And then you can't even claim that you didn't know any better because... Correctional officers are telling you, hey, this guy is dangerous. He's going to reoffend. Like, I'm telling you, the board still makes a decision to release him. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Let's see what happens. They saw. On February 18th, Caitlin Lindsay Babb, who's 21 at the time, and McFadden's 37, she runs across an account on TikTok that he's created. And what bothers her about it is that all the girls on there are young girls, appear to be young girls. So she screenshots or screen records his TikTok to show all these girls. And then she starts to reach out to some of these girls because she's trying to warn them. She knows that this guy is dangerous. So she's reaching out to them. Finally, she, she gets some of the girls 
And she ends up speaking to one of the girl's moms and she tells the mom, hey, this is his history. He's a registered sex offender. You know, he's got a pending case with me. He had a first degree rape charge that he was given 20 years for that he just got out from. Like, he's not a good guy. When the mom starts to look into it, guess what the mom realizes? What? The mom realizes that he's been going to the skating ring, meeting her daughter and other friends who are underage. And she is upset. This is in McAllister, right? Yes, this is in McAllister. So then on March 21st, Joseph, Joe Emery Guess, and Holly Tanette L. Guess, who's 33 at the time, they officially separate. And when I say officially separate, they officially separated according to their court documents. Sometimes there's a required separation period in order for you to be able to file for divorce or get a divorce. And so that could have just been a, an arbitrary date. That could potentially be an admin date. Right. Yeah. But... What do we believe is the situation with Holly at this point? Do we believe that she's with Joe or do we believe that she's with Jesse at this point? I 100% believe she's with Jesse. Everything indicates so. You yeah. know, she's been talking to him since about 2015, possibly 2014. And in all that time, she's been talking to him for more than five years now. He's released and she's moved to Henrietta, Oklahoma. So by 2021, she was in Henrietta. Yes. And one of the reasons that we know that is because remember that the Websters moved to Henrietta, Oklahoma in December, Mm -hmm. right? So they moved to Oklahoma in December of 2020, which would be just a couple months after McFadden got out of prison. And they said that the first time their kids were on the bus together with Holly's kids, they made friends immediately. Right. So that tells us that she was already there. She was already there. So more than likely, Holly is living with Jesse illegally. Yes. Illegal for for Jesse. Right. On December 21st, Joe Guest files for divorce, and they do their initial marital settlement agreement. It's signed. So remember, when we talk about March 21st, We know that date because it's listed on this December 21st filing. And notice that it's the 21st, March 21st, December 21st. So they didn't even like fake one day. They made it exact for whatever the time frame was that they needed. So then fast forward to 2022 and Holly purchases a nine millimeter handgun. The only purchase of a handgun or gun period that we're aware of. And this kind of seems a little odd. Now she's 33 at this point. And I say odd because she's already been living on the property for a year. So if she thought she needed a gun on the property, she would have known a year ago. And she's not somebody who likes to deal with firearms based on her history. She's not somebody who's known to be into firearms based on her history. So why did she feel it necessary to get a firearm in January of 2022? Curious to know that. I'm sure we never will. Yeah, not only that, but also... She's not allowed to have a gun with Jesse. Right. Jesse's not supposed to be in the vicinity of a gun. There shouldn't even be a gun in the house or in the car or anywhere around Jesse. And guess what? Guess what's what's interesting about this as well? What's that? Is that she purchases this just within months of them getting married. Oh. So it's almost like she purchased it before they got married so that she could then say, well, I purchased it before we were married. Like before this felon was technically in the house when he should have been in the house. Right. I had already purchased the firearm. So all of that just kind of together just makes me speculate a little bit. And obviously, we'll probably never know this information, truthfully. Yeah. So then on February 4th, there's supposed to be a trial and it's moved yet again. Then on February 20th, 
Cody Ray McFadden kidnaps and locks a woman in a dog kennel. And there's actually a dog that gets killed during all of this because he ends up lighting the dog cage and trailer on fire. And the only reason that the girl even gets out is that he hits the the kennel with a, an axe. And when he did that, thank goodness he didn't hit her in the head or anything. But when he hits the kennel with the axe, it pops the door open and she actually jumps out of a glass window to get out and get away. She's got bruises. Obviously, she's bloody. You know, he tried to burn her. She's terrified. And she's related to Crystal Strong. She is Crystal Strong's dad's stepdaughter by common law. Then on March 21st, Holly signs the marital settlement agreement with Joe. So this is the final settlement agreement that's signed. Another 21st. That's true. I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. Another 21st. I didn't even notice that. That is how funny is that? <laughs> So then on April 14th, Cody Ray McFadden's charges are dismissed due to being a Sioux Indian and the incidents taking place on Indian land. The federal government is required to take a case that falls under the Federal Major Crimes Act. The cases that fall under the Federal Major Crimes Act are crimes that are like very violent in nature or are murder. So things like first degree rape, murder, robbery of a bank, those kind of things are all considered part of the Federal Major Crimes Act. So anytime, regardless if it's an Indian or on Indian land, the federal government is required to take that case. So um, more to follow on that. I know that a lot of people think that that case was completely dismissed, and that's not the case. So Yeah, just, that's what I was going to say. I was going to recap on that and say, so his, his case was not dismissed. It just had to be moved up to the federal level because it happened on tribal land, and the, the crimes were so egregious that it had to be bumped up to the federal level. Right. And just so that you're aware, because there was a lot more charges in addition to that incident, after that all took place, because he was taken to a hospital, he's got a mental disorder, all these different things. He punched a doctor, he assaulted a law enforcement officer. So there's multiple other things that occurred, you know, during that whole incident when that incident took place. Right. And all of those things have been moved to a federal level. So then on May 2nd, this is the next jury trial that is not conducted and it's moved yet again. Then on May 24th, so May 21st, Holly signed off on the final agreement. On May 24th, Joe Guess and Holly Mayo, who's 34 at the time, get divorced. So that's when their divorce is finalized on May 24th. Remember, she bought a firearm in January. Now on May 24th, she's officially divorced. On May 25th, or the day after they get divorced, McFadden registers in Okmulgee County as a registered sex offender for the first time since his October 30th, 2020 release from prison. And why does he do that? He does that so he can give him his new address, officially, which is his address with Holly. Because on May 26th, the very next day, McFadden marries Holly Tanette El Guess. So it seems like those dates were very, very well planned out. Your divorce is final on this day. On this day, I'll register. On this day, we'll officially be man and wife, be living together in our house legally now. Right. And when you look at it all down on paper that way, you realize that there was a plan there. That wasn't coincidence. Yeah, yeah it didn't all just happen by chance. Right. So then on June 24th, the sex offender compliance check was conducted by Deputy Smalley from the Okmulgee County Sheriff's Office and on it, he indicates that there's a credit card bill that was reviewed, but the name spelled wrong. And the reason that I found this odd is because, one, when you're reviewing an ID card and you're saying you're this person, 
This is where you live. You know, this is what your ID card says. This is what the paperwork says. How do you get the name spelled wrong? You know how you get the name spelled wrong? It's when you know the person and you're assuming the spelling of the name. Not when you're looking at something and saying, oh, J-E-S-S-E. No, he knew his name was Jesse. And he wrote it from memory thinking he knew how he was spelling it. That's what happened there. That's pretty interesting. That sounds pretty good. (laughs) So then on September 28th is supposed to be the next trial. And yet again, it is moved again. Then in December of 2022, Justin Webster officially adopts Ivy Berlin Webster. 2023. So sometime during the year, Riley Allen reports abuse to the school to no avail, according to classmates. This may be from Westville, Oklahoma, and not involve McFadden. And the reason that we say that is because we've tried to find the parents for this girl, and we actually have documentation of it on our Facebook group. If you go check out our Facebook group, there's documentation of the conversation where the girls from her school are talking about the reports. And when we've tried to find the parents, we're finding that it quite possibly might be in Westville. So if it was in Westville, it leaves us to believe that it may not be McFadden who's the person. But it also could be, even if it is Westville, it also could be there. So we're going to try to delve into that a little bit more and see if we can actually find where that occurred so that we can update you guys. So then on January 15th, search records indicate that LaDonna McFadden, McFadden's mom, was employed starting in May of 2018, like we talked about earlier, at the Pittsburgh County Courthouse. So this is the last time frame where you see LaDonna's name associated with the Pittsburgh County Courthouse right. in 2023. And obviously this would be a couple years after McFadden's release from prison. So then on January 29th, so later that month, a 911 call is made by an anonymous female at 8.07 p.m. telling the operator that a registered sex offender is in the home with three children and that they wanted it documented. Now, who would do that? Okay, this is in January. Who would have that information in January and why would they report it? And this is a female. So who is this female and why would they report it? And the reason that I question the reports with Riley is because if this occurred during the beginning of the year and it was actually McFadden who the complaint was about that Riley's giving, for somebody to call in January, was that Riley? Because her friend said that she had made a report to CPS, which I don't think she made a report to CPS because that hasn't officially come out and I think that it would have as of now. What if... That's not what she did. What if she called 911? Then in February sometime, she's pulled out of school and it's unknown as to why. Just because of the timing, yeah, it it makes me think that. Even if for some reason the call was made while she was in Westville or whatever the case may be. I don't know what the details surrounding that are, but we know that the kids have already made friends with the Websters at this point. And we know that there's a phone call saying that kids are living with him. And so who would have that information? And if the information's accurate, as Holly's family's saying, because they're saying that they didn't find out he was a sex offender until March 20th, as far as the family went, nobody but Holly knew at this point that he was a sex offender, then who would have had the knowledge to make the call in January if this was before everybody knew? That's a female. I would say either Holly or Riley. Only those two. And there was a comment made by one of the kids in that communication when you look at the communication where they're saying if only somebody would have believed them, they would have been saved, basically. And 
if it aligns with this as we believe that it does, then that could very well be the case. Yeah. So then the same month in February, there was supposed to be a jury trial that month, and it is again moved. On February 19th at 8.17 p.m., so this is now just barely a month, not even a month, a couple weeks after the anonymous phone call of the female, on February 19th, James Fleming, who's the ex-cellmate of McFadden, contacts the Henrietta Police Department to see if they have a registered sex offender list for people in their town. On February 20th, he contacts Holly. So he hasn't heard back from the police department. On the 20th, he contacts Holly and basically just making small talk with her. And one of the things that he said to her was, hey, I saw that your name changed to McFadden. And of course, he's assuming, obviously, I know that McFadden was in touch with her and creepy, you know, and she says, yeah, we got married. Me and Jesse got married. Now he's come out on TV and said that he didn't want to come out on the phone and tell her, Hey, you married a really dangerous guy because he was worried that McFadden might be monitoring her phone. And so he didn't want to say anything like that. So then on February 27th, that's 6 46 PM, he receives a message back from the Henrietta Police Department letting him know that the state has a public registered sex offender list. So it took them more than seven days to even respond to him to tell him, hey, no, we don't. <laughs> I will say that one of the reasons that they do have a county one is that, and Oklahoma is one that would definitely fall under this, but if you have tribal land or if it's unincorporated land, then that falls under the jurisdiction of the county, which would be the county sheriff. And the land that the McFadden's were living on when the murders took place is considered unincorporated land. So that fell under Okmulgee County. So he was required to register with Okmulgee County. And if you're on unincorporated land, you're supposed to be treated like a transient. And for registered sex offenders, when you're a transient, you have to report every seven days. And I 100% guarantee you, just based on the little that we've seen and the little you know visits that we've seen, that was not happening. Right. So then February, that same day, so a couple hours later, um, or a little less than a couple hours, James Fleming lets the Henrietta Police Department know that there's a predator with multiple offenses in town. So basically he's like, hey, like, I get it that you guys don't have a registered sex offender list, but there's a dangerous dude living in your city, and I just want you to know. So fast forward to April 29th. Remember that there's the phone call that occurred in January saying there's a dangerous dude. There's February that occurs where somebody's saying, hey, there's a dangerous dude in your town. Now in April, on April 29th, which is a Saturday, Annika Kramer, who's a friend of Tiffany Guest, was invited to the McFadden's residence that weekend. Said, hey, you know, we might go to the mall in Tulsa. You know, we're going to hang out, have a sleepover. It was kind of a last minute deal. And Annika was like, no, can't do it this weekend. Maybe next weekend. And so she turns Tiffany down for the sleepover. So then by that night, so now, as we all know, both Ivy and Brittany come to the sleepover at the McFadden's residence. And they're both friends of Tiffany. And Ivy is Tiffany's best friend. Like they're like joined at the hip. Ashley, who's Ivy's mom, actually talks about how she was getting ready to give Tiffany a key to their house. Like that's how close her and Ivy were. And, you know, very close friends. And obviously... Ivy's mom trusted Tiffany. That night, the girls are spotted at a place called the main event. Now, the main event is kind of like a Dave and Buster's, 
if anybody knows what Dave and Buster's is, like a like an arcade type place where they have food and everything, a place that kids would want to hang out. It's not a club, you know, but it's a it's a place that kids would want to hang out. And um, they were spotted that night there. And there's been some talk that possibly they were spotted at um, Brahms and Walmart. And I'm not sure. I'm guessing that Brahms and Walmart was also Saturday as well, April 29th, because I don't believe that anything has been said about Sunday. And it makes sense with the timeline that there was no spottings on Sunday. So it would actually be odd if they were spotted on Sunday, considering that everyone was under the impression that all the girls were in McAllister on Sunday, because that's what Jesse had kind of pushed the idea that they were going to be in McAllister. So it would be odd for them to be in town in case they were seen by anybody when they were supposed to be somewhere else. Right. That's true. They're spotted at the main event. And then later that night, Ivy speaking to her mom, Ashley Webster via Snapchat and text message late that night, close to midnight. And a matter of fact, I guess Ivy had made a joke with her mom saying, Hey, it's past your bedtime because her mom was up late talking to her and her mom knew that that conversation was her because it sounded like her, how she would communicate back and forth. And she was also sending her selfies. She knew that was her. Yeah. There was no doubt. So then on April 30th, which is Sunday, early that morning, Ashley Webster, who's Ivy's mom, gets a message from Ivy's phone that said, going to McAllister, be home around five. The Websters today do not believe that that was Ivy. At the time, I think she thought it was a little bit out of sorts because that didn't really sound like how Ivy communicated with her, but like she could have been in a rush. She just wasn't thinking anything crazy. She had no reason to think anything crazy because Ivy's been there several times before throughout the last couple years and they've never had any issues. Her mind isn't even going in that direction. But it is raising the flag. But it is raising a little bit yeah. of a flag. Like, oh, that yeah, sounds kind of weird. Yeah. So then that night around five o'clock PM, which is when this message from Ivy indicated that she was going to be home. Ashley receives a phone call saying that their service wasn't really good and that the kids would be home later that evening. And that's coming from McFadden's phone. And she thought it was a little bit odd that it wasn't from Ivy, but she's like, oh, where they're having bad cell service, you know, and he was basically like, oh, I walked to a place where I could get enough service to contact you. Again, she's thinking this is kind of weird, but again, her mind's not going to a really dark place because her daughter's been there before. Right. It's another flag, but... Not more than that. Right. So then this same day, so still April 30th on Sunday, McFadden calls his mom in the evening telling her that he's not going back to prison and he's thinking about killing himself. This is speculated to be around 6 o'clock p.m., somewhere around that time. A couple hours later, just before 8 o'clock p.m., McFadden contacts Caitlin Lindsay Babb on Facebook and he sends her a message from an account called Holly Days that we believe might either be Holly's or Holly's business account, telling her, I did exactly what I promised I would do when I got out. I got a marketing job, making great money, and was being advanced. Been there two years now and made a great life like I promised I would do with you. Now it's all gone. I told you I wouldn't go back. This is all on you for continuing this. And I think the important part of that message is now it's all gone. Right. And I say that because in trying to analyze what happens next and what we discover to be the case, in trying to find out, did something already happen at this point or is something getting ready to happen? It sounds from his statement that something has already taken place. Right. That's true. Because he's talking past tense. He's not talking like... Now it's all gone. Not like, like, hey, everything's going to be gone. Right. Yeah. 
So then we get to May 1st on Monday, and at 1.30 a.m., there was a report the girls were seen, and I'm not too sure. I'm thinking that this 1.30 a.m., honestly, Brahms isn't open at 1.30 a.m., and I'm most Walmarts aren't open at 1.30 a.m., so I honestly think that this was Saturday. I think that the days are wrong. And one of the reports that had come out, and again, I think this was Saturday, was some people had said that they thought that he was inappropriately kind of the way that he was with Brittany. We, again, we don't know the truth to that. We haven't seen that, and we haven't spoken to anybody that can give us solid details for that. So we don't want to say that we know that to be the case. So that morning at 7.55 a.m., Oklahoma Highway Patrol posted a Facebook message for a missing and endangered juvenile. So I don't know the exact time that the Websters and the Brewers went to report their kids missing. I don't know if it actually occurred maybe late the night before or if it occurred first thing that morning. But regardless, the message didn't go out until 7.55 a.m. on Monday morning saying that there were missing and endangered juveniles. And I would imagine that at 5 o'clock when you expected your kids back, you'd have been texting and calling your kids like, hey, what's going on? When are you coming home? And they were and they weren't reaching anybody. And one of the things that I think was the biggest red flag for the Websters was that they had a app on Ivy's phone called Life360. And Life360 allows for a family to kind of track each other. So like it'll let you know like, hey, your kid's home or hey, your kid's at school. You can set it up to give you notifications for certain things. And it had been turned off. That could have been the phone died or, right. like, you know what I'm saying? Like that could have been also been a flag, but you could talk that through. But my thought process here is, is talking about as a parent, what your, your logic is going through at five o'clock when your kids don't show up. Right. So if it's five o'clock, your kids don't show up. You give it some time around five thirty, six o'clock. You're starting to text your kids. You're trying to call them. You're looking at their app to see where they're at. If they're on their way home, you're realizing the app is off. They're not answering the phone. So now you're resorting to calling the adult that went out. You're trying to reach Holly. Which is what happened. Yeah. You're trying to reach Jesse and you're doing that for a couple hours. And then you're probably setting a timeline and saying, if I don't hear by from anybody by nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, I'm going to the police. Right. And that's probably how that kind of played out. So, so I would think that somewhere Sunday night, they would have been at the police station filing a, Hey, my family didn't come home today and they were supposed to be home at five. I don't think they would have waited to the next morning to escalate that. Right. And not just that, but during that time frame as well, they haven't had anything happen before that led them to believe that they should be thinking in a very dark manner. You know, they're they're just thinking, hey, the kids are staying out too late. They had bad service. Maybe they left late and they can't get a hold of us. Like they're thinking all the things that anybody would think when you haven't had any reason to think badly of somebody before. Right. So then at at 1021 a.m., an endangered missing advisory is sent out, kind of like the Amber Alerts are. And a lot of people have questioned what the difference is between an Amber Alert and this endangered missing advisory. An Amber Alert is basically, hey, kids are missing. And states are different as to when they'll send these out, like what the criteria is. Some of them are, are more free with sending out Amber Alerts, and some of them are they only do it under certain circumstances. But in this circumstance, they do it when they believe that there could be somebody in danger. It's not just a matter of, hey, somebody's missing. They really believed that danger was imminent. That is why they sent out the message the way that they did. And of course, at this point, the police realize that he's a registered sex offender and they see that he's got a pending case. So by the time all this is coming together and the parents are saying, hey, our kids haven't come home. Our daughters are about this age. Oh, by the way, the daughters are around the age of Caitlin Babb. The daughters are around the age of the girl he assaulted that landed him in prison. So this is all becoming a, hey, this can't be a a unique coincidence. 
it was of more importance to them than just a typical Amber Alert. So I would assume that around somewhere around this time is when Joe Prentice, the chief of the police, is notified of the Walmart footage somewhere in between this time. I'm not sure at what point he was notified of the footage. I'm guessing that it would have been close to this time. After this alert goes out, they start getting information. Right. And that's when people are saying, hey, I saw him here. I saw him there. And, you know, people don't always remember exactly the day and time either. So those days and times could have been off a little bit. Yeah. But they did review a Walmart video that they believe might be the last time that the girls were seen alive. And I believe that that was Saturday night, late Saturday night. So the sheriff has a deputy that moonlights as security for Walmart. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And so he uses that connection to go in and review the footage and confirms, yes, this is Jesse. And oh, yes, by the way, he has how many of the girls with him at that time? I believe two that they saw in the video as far as I know. Okay. But it's possible one could have went another way or went in the car or anything like that. Well, and typically you don't all stay together when you're at the store anyway. So they could have been separated. But at the time, who they were specifically looking for was Brittany and Ivy. Oh, yeah, yeah. They weren't necessarily looking for, hey, where's, you know, Holly and her kids. They're looking for the girls who have been reported missing. Right. Then at 1245 p.m. that day is the last time that a cell phone's pinged on or near the property of Holly's. And Tiffany's signals lost. At 1.25 p.m., the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department, armed with a failure-to-appear warrant and search warrant, show up. They notice that the front door is ajar. And Eddie Rice, who's friends with Joe Prentice, brought him along instead of the Henrietta Police Department. And why does that stand out? A couple reasons. So we already heard what Joe Prentice and Eddie Rice said. This, this boy, Eddie <laughs> yeah. Rice? Yeah. What they said to the guy who reported something to Karoliski that was going on. We already know how those two were together to be able to even say that to him. And then when you have a case where you're showing up and you think you may need help, first of all, the person who has primary jurisdiction is the person whose jurisdiction it's in. And because this was unincorporated land, that was Eddie Rice. He was the primary agency. Why he brought an agency who's like further down the road as opposed to the local police department beats me. But if you're trying to get help and you're trying to get help quickly, it makes sense that you get the closest agency possible. Which would have been the Henrietta Police Department. Right. Which did not. It did not happen. Yeah. And we actually have some documents here from when the medical examiner released the autopsy summaries. And one thing that's interesting is that with the timeline, because... I remember when they officially reported about what time they showed up to the house. They say they showed up to the house somewhere around 1.25 p.m. But when I look at the autopsy report, I see that OSBI was contacted at 11.58 a.m. Obviously, that time is pretty off, right? How did you contact OSBI at 11.58 if you were standing at the gate with warrants at 1.25 p.m.? How did you do that so many hours earlier and why? So the timeline is off. Right. The timeline's off. And then the other thing is, is that it says that his body was found at 3.23 p.m. When Eddie Rice did the press conference in front of McFadden's house, he said that they found the bodies about 3 o'clock. Yeah, maybe he could be a little bit off. It was before 3.30, but they certainly found the bodies after 3, but he says about 3. And so I don't know if we consider that to be a little off. I would say that's ballpark close. Now, the 11 o'clock versus the 1 o'clock, that's way off. That Like, you wouldn't confuse 11 with 1. Yeah. So that seems odd to me. So before you even showed up with the warrant, you're already calling OSBI saying, hey, we're going to have some bodies. How do you know that? Right. How do you know that? 
They say that when they show up, that they see the door ajar, the front door. They already have the failure to appear warrant, which is the warrant for him not showing up for his jury trial, not even a court hearing. It's a jury trial. There's a whole jury panel that's there waiting for him, and he doesn't show. So, and during this time frame, just so that you're aware, they've contacted Caitlin Babb to let Caitlin Babb know, obviously, the trial has been canceled because he didn't show. She's freaking out when she finds out that these girls are missing because she finds out the girls are missing not long after they send out all of these reports. And so she's thinking like, this can't be good. It's the day of our trial. It's two girls that are young and like none of this makes sense, right? At approximately three o'clock PM, the Okmulgee Sheriff's Department finds seven deceased bodies, the bodies of Holly, Riley, Michael, Tiffany, Brittany, Ivy, and Jesse, all of them with gunshot wounds to the head. Holly had three gunshot wounds to the head. Riley had one. Michael had two. Tiffany had two. And Brittany and Ivy both had one gunshot wound to the head. And then Jesse McFadden had one self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He shot himself through the mouth, through his palate. During this time, Justin Webster has shown up to the house. And when he knows that they're out there, and of course, he's freaking out. His daughter's been missing. He hasn't talked to her at all since, since Saturday night. They haven't heard from her all day Sunday. And so when he's there, unfortunately, he's told, hey, we found some bodies out here. And yes, we believe that one of them is Ivy Webster. So he leaves to go find Nathan Brewer. And he actually catches up with Nathan Brewer before the police do. And he lets them know, hey, the girls, the girls are dead. That same day, they impound the vehicle there. It's the 2007 Chevrolet Avalanche that belonged to Jesse McFadden. There was a vigil that was hosted that night at the school because all the kids went to the Henrietta Public Schools there. And now, there was another vehicle that was also parked in that property that belonged to Holly. Yes, and one of the things that's strange is that not only did they not take that vehicle to do anything with it, but the family picked it up immediately. Holly's family picked up that car immediately. And one of the things that was odd, and there's some evidence of this, is that Holly's purse was sitting in the passenger side seat. So she had left her purse on the passenger side seat of her vehicle, um, and her vehicle was parked outside. But no evidence was taken from it, and they did nothing with the vehicle. They didn't process the vehicle. They didn't pull the vehicle out and hold it like they initially did with the avalanche. Because initially, they didn't pull evidence out of the avalanche, Jesse's vehicle. Initially, what they did was they had it towed away and they had a no touch hold put on it where basically you can't do anything with it until they decide whether or not they're going to do something with it. And they should have done the same thing with Holly's vehicle, but they didn't. Yeah. And now something that you guys will hear a lot when it comes to the law enforcement agencies is this. Anytime that there's an investigation and law enforcement is involved, the primary agency is going to be the agency with jurisdiction. When they ask for assistance, so if I were a small police department and I know that I'm showing up to a place where there's 100 acres and I've found people who have been murdered, I'm going to want help. And depending on how many people have been found, I'm probably going to want to reach out to an agency that's above me, such as OSBI. So long as I'm the primary agency, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one giving the orders. I'm the one saying, hey, you guys process the house. You guys process this piece of land. You guys process this piece of land. So when people say, oh, well, how come OSBI didn't this or didn't that before they took over, they weren't in charge. So they were just given marching orders as to what they needed assistance with. Hey, we need assistance with going through the house and tagging evidence. So if they weren't giving marching orders for a certain thing, they weren't going to interrupt their their investigation because 
it's not their jurisdiction and they're not the lead agency. They're just hired help at that point. Right. Yeah. It's basically like bringing in temporary staff. Like they're just doing what they're told. Yeah. They're just more bodies to help because the scene is so big that they need some additional support. And so just to be clear, the agency that was responsible on this particular scene, on this particular night, because it's unincorporated land, would have been the sheriff. Right. The Okamogi sheriff, which was Eddie Rice. Right. And so on May 2nd, so this is the day after the murders, the police informed the Webster family that McFadden planned to kill each victim. And there's, um, they believe, might be some evidence that three of them tried escaping and were hunted down and killed. So that same day, the state medical examiner's office notifies the families of the manner of death. Lynn Watt, who's Holly's aunt, says that some girl had contacted her saying that she was paid to lie and say that um, she was McFadden's victim. And that basically trying to smooth things over with Holly and make Holly think that he wasn't this registered sex offender, this violent rapist, and this guy who's pending charges with an underage girl. This girl has never come forward. This has never been able to be validated. And nobody's ever heard from this girl. So does this girl exist? Yeah. When Caitlin Babb found the TikTok account and she recorded it and she reached out to the kids and eventually one of the moms, the mom tried to report it to the Henrietta Police Department. And they said that they couldn't do anything, that he wasn't doing anything illegal. When we talk about Holly, I find it hard to believe that as a grown woman with children who's been in a couple different serious relationships, you've been married for about 14 years with Joe Guess, that you've been talking to somebody in prison since about 2014, 2015, so at least five years at the point he even gets out, what, seven, almost eight years by the time you get married. You mean to tell me that a 15-year-old girl who was talking to him on the phone in prison found out who he was within a couple years, and you're talking about a person with serious issues who can't keep things to himself, that was going to come out, that she didn't know what he was in prison for, that she didn't know he was a sex offender, I just don't buy it. Yeah. I don't. From my understanding of some of the conversations that he's had with Bab, they were of a violent nature, very telling of who he was and his demeanor as a person. I would believe that that would be consistent with his conversations with Holly. I would think that the conversations he had with Caitlin would be very similar to the conversations he would have with Holly. Right. I will tell you that there's a lot of things that occurred throughout the time that Caitlin and McFadden were communicating, whether that was relationship wise, grooming wise, you know, throughout that whole process where it's just very evident what a dark sadistic person he is and how much he can't refrain from doing a lot of things that he does. So I really find it hard to believe that Holly wouldn't know. Now, I do believe that anybody who has children, I'd like to believe this because people hurt their children as well, but I'd like to believe that Maybe she wanted to believe the best in him. Maybe she believed he had changed. Maybe he had convinced her he had changed. I don't know. I would like to think that she wouldn't want to put her kids in danger. And I would like to think that she didn't see something like this happening. I think the interview with Caitlin Babb is going to be very telling as to what potentially Holly was aware of at the time that she brought McFadden into her family. So the law enforcement agencies that were involved in the investigation were the Henrietta Fire Department, the Henrietta Police Department, Okmulgee Police Chief and Crimes Task Force Commander Joe Prentice, and the Okmulgee County Sheriff's Department, who's the lead agency initially, Eddie Rice, 
and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations director would be Angela Spurlock. Um, I don't believe that Angela Spurlock was on the scene. She'd be like the top person for OSBI. But OSBI was called in and they were there on day one assisting, but they didn't take over until later. So that day, they actually ended their investigation. So keep in mind that this is a property with 100 acres. This is a house that a family of five lived in. And their investigation ceased on day two, not even a full 48 hours. I don't even think even a full 24 hours. They ceased their investigation. And one of the things that occurred almost immediately was that Holly's family came in with a U-Haul and started bringing stuff out. And when some of the other families found out, they showed up. And on May 3rd, which is Wednesday, so now this is two days after they've found the bodies, on May 3rd, a press conference is held by Mulgee Police Department, Chief Joe Prentice. And he talks about the evidence and he talks about how they all died of gunshot wounds. He doesn't give out a whole lot of details. He says that a lot of the details he's giving out are very generalized because they haven't done official autopsies and all of those kind of things. That same day, LaDonna McFadden scrubs her Facebook profile. So she makes it very vanilla. So it's harder for you to find her. She makes her friends list private. So you can't find her friends. I mean, she does all of that around this time frame. So she's prepping for, you know, she knows it. the news at this point, they've already been trying to reach out to her. People are trying to get interviews. And so she tries to make it a little bit harder for people to find her. ODOC, Kay Thompson releases an explanation on McFadden's release. According to ODOC, McFadden was compliant with stipulations. When you look at the things that she says, basically what she talks about in this particular um, notice is that he reached the 85%. He had earned the early release points by the time he reached the 85% because what happens is you earn the points from the time you enter prison to the time you leave. And there's certain situations where your credits that you've earned can be taken away if you get in trouble, but it's never enough to basically eliminate all your points. I don't even think that there is a case where they can eliminate all your points currently. So he was earning all these points. And then when you reach the 85%, then they take those points that have occurred throughout that entire time and add them up to see, hey, when you can get out. And so when they added them up, he was able to get out on October 30th, 2020. What a crock of shit. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy to me that you can have 10 infractions in prison, two of which are sexual in nature, one of which was a rape accusation that I don't even believe they completed the investigation for. The guy received a rape exam, and then you have a pending case, and you let him out of prison. Yeah, on Early, good behavior. On, on yeah. good yeah. The other thing, too, is that you earn two at different levels. So when you first arrive, you're earning at like a level one, and then you go up to a level two and three and four. Four is the highest one. Throughout most of his prison time, he was at level four. I don't know at which point and for how long they reduced him, but for most of the time that he was there, he was earning at the highest level, which I want to say is like 40-something days a month. More days than there are in a month. So how is he going to lose enough points to where once he reaches his 85% because he has a long sentence where it's even going to matter how many points he lost. At the point that he committed a crime with the sexual assault, that right there should have stopped the clock of him earning any any kind of points and it should have given him more time. They absolutely should Because that was a crime. Then when he committed the crime with Caitlin, that should have again stopped the clock and should have added more time. 
And like, you know what's funny to me is that, you know, you would think that ODOC and that the state would have common sense. And common sense would tell you he's had two sexual-related infractions while in prison, not even out in the open, out with normal society. He's had two infractions while in prison. And he's had one that was a law violation with an underage minor while contained. What do you think he's going to do when he's not contained? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Common sense. Common sense. Yeah. So then on May 4th, the Websters go inside the McFadden home after the Okmulgee County Sheriff's Department releases the scene and they unearth crucial evidence that was not seized to include Ivy's cell phone. That was probably one of the worst injustices that I've ever seen. Absolutely. You know, I have to say that the Websters have had such incredible composure that I've seen because I've never been through what the Websters have been through. And I don't know how I would respond in some of the situations that they've been in. I don't know how I would respond if I walked into a house and my daughter's cell phone was there and you're doing the investigation. I would immediately think y'all are not competent enough to do an investigation where my child's concerned. Like, I know I would think that. So, and I think that in this case as well, I think they've messed up enough that OSBI was right to come in and take over the investigation. Yeah. But OSBI should have came in and arrested whoever was supposed to be doing the investigation for, for the injustice of not even. Absolutely. I think that they need releasing to be held the crime scene, releasing the crime scene. Let me tell you something. Somebody who watches CSI could do a better job than they did. 100%. This is to you, Eddie Rice. <laughs> to you. Yeah. A kindergartner could have done a better, a better crime scene investigation than Eddie Rice. One thing that I will say is that, you know, of all these things that they found in there, talking about somebody who's got a history of having sex with people who don't want to have sex with them, you have a history of somebody who likes underage girls, then you've got these underage girls who have been murdered and then you don't process the inside of the house. Why? Because you assume that the person who killed him is dead because he killed himself. How do you know there's not somebody else involved? Right. Like what kind of policing is that? Because even in an active shooter, even though typically it's only one shooter, you every still... police department is trained to clear the, building clear the building and make sure there isn't another shooter. Right. So why in a murder case would you assume, oh, this is the only guy? It's basic. It's, it's freaking basic. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So then on May 5th, which is Friday, the Websters enter the McFadden residence a second time after another release of the scene by law enforcement agencies. And guess what? They find more cell phones Say amongst so. other items. Two chances to get it right, and they still got it wrong. You know what? I bet the Mayo's made out with more stuff in their U-Haul than OSBI Absolutely. did. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a shame, Eddie Rice. It is a shame. So then OSBI takes on the investigation as lead agency at the request of the Okmulgee um, District Attorney, Karoliski. Remember that name? Karoliski is also the name of the DA who the incident was reported to in the county jail where somebody was fired and where Joe Prentice and um, Eddie Rice had something to say about it. Can't be a coincidence. Can't be a coincidence. Nope. So then when this takes place, the governor, who's Governor Kevin Stitt currently, he charges the Secretary of Public Safety, Trisha Everest, with overseeing how things play out. So, Trisha Everest, we're hoping you do a good job. Well, what's ironic is that we still haven't heard anything from Trisha Everest on this case. I don't I even think she's ever... Maybe she doesn't yeah. even exist. Maybe she doesn't exist. <laughs> Are you out there, Trisha? Yeah. <laughs> Are you out there? Yeah. 
I can't believe they haven't even done a press release to say, hey, this is where we're at with the case. This is what's going on. Um, to let people know that it's simply an investigated. The most common comment that I've seen online about this case is, why is nobody still investigating this case? You know, I'm honestly starting to feel like they're just wanting it to die down. Like they're yeah. hoping that it dies down and nobody is, you know, because then nobody's going to keep digging and nobody's going to keep. And why would you want that? Other yeah. than if you're not doing the right thing, if your motives are right. not right, it, you know, it's really frustrating. And as a community, I can't even imagine. First of all, I wouldn't want to live in that community after this yeah. took place because the law enforcement was incompetent. The way that they're responding is incompetent. Right. I don't feel like these families are getting justice. And so I wouldn't want to live there, you know, and some of those people can't probably can't afford to move out of there. But I would I would like to think that there's people who are leaving because I wouldn't want to be associated with a with a community that like that. And don't get me wrong, just because there's people in that community who aren't good doesn't mean that there aren't people in that community who are good. I'm sure that there are. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to be associated with agencies that are not going to have my best interest at heart. Right. Yeah. I think we deserve uh, an update from Trisha Everest. Absolutely. Somebody needs to reach out to her office and say, hey, Trisha, you need to give us an update on what's going on with this investigation. We haven't heard anything. The only thing that is keeping people's interest right now is the release of the autopsy reports. And, and beyond that, we haven't heard anything else about this case. We don't know where they're at with the digital investigation, with the online investigation. We haven't, we haven't got any updates. And, and I think that's a, it's a shame. Absolutely. So then on May 6th, which is Saturday, law enforcement agencies were informed of a storage facility. No evidence was seized as law enforcement said that it only contained pool supplies, though the McFadden's did not own a pool. So, that seems odd to me. Yeah. Because why would you pay for a storage unit with supplies to something you don't even own? So that's a little bit off to me. That same day, services for Ivy Berlin Webster are held. On May 8th, which is Monday, there's eight pieces of evidence that are seized from the 2007 white Chevrolet Avalanche. That was the avalanche that was owned by McFadden that was originally put on a no-touch hold and taken out of there initially. On May 9th, which is Tuesday, the medical examiner shares with Shannon Boykin, who's um, Ivy's grandmother, that Ivy had been sexually assaulted. And what we know as of now, based on the summaries that have been released, both Ivy Webster and Brittany Brewer were both sexually assaulted. Others that were released did not indicate any sexual assault. And all of their talk screens were negative, except for Brittany's, who had some alcohol. And... Holly's who had a medication that she was taking that can be taken either for depression and it can also be taken for certain eating disorders like bulimia. And then she was taking another uh, medication that's uh, typically taken for, it would be considered like an upper type drug. It's called phenamine. Um, those were the only things that were found. But guys, I've seen one of the summaries. Actually, I've seen two of the summaries. I've seen one in depth for Holly and one in depth for Jesse, and in neither talk screen did they test for marijuana. And guess what? There was marijuana gummies found in the home. So why did they not test for marijuana? That makes no sense to me at all. Well, they would test for alcohol, but not marijuana? Yeah. You didn't see any alcohol in the house, you know, well, yeah. that I know of. I'm sure there was probably alcohol in there, but you saw these marijuana gummies and you didn't test for marijuana. It, obviously, you want to test for as many drugs as you can. And there are a lot of drugs and typically they test based on the classes of drugs. 
which is pretty common. That's what hospitals do as well. There's some drugs like steroids is a special test. And granted, if you see evidence of drug use, you're going to want to make sure that the drugs that you see are drugs that are tested for. It's a shot in the dark for all the other drugs. But come on, man. If there's marijuana there, test for marijuana. Right. So still on May 9th, OSBI employs sonar devices and has dive teams out at the ponds and brings excavators out to the McFadden residence property. So they're basically combing through the property, trying to see if there's any other victims, if there's any loose dirt, if there's any if there's any movement in the water where maybe there's other bodies. Um, so they're doing those kind of things. And as far as we know, all of that came back negative. That same day, Holly's aunt reported that she found bloody clothes, bones, and a stack of photos and binders. Um, she also talked about a ledger video and, and things of that nature. And what's interesting is that I've heard several things from her. One, I've heard that the bones that she said she found were cow bones, that she never said she found human bones. You know, then I've heard that quite possibly the clothes that she found that they do exist, but that OSBI is telling her not to talk about it until after the investigation's done. One of the actions that took place was they lifted floorboards. And guys, I don't know what family goes into a house and their first thought is to look under floorboards. I don't know who thinks that way unless you're an investigator. And I'm pretty sure the investigators didn't lift floorboards. They didn't lift floorboards. They didn't lift the phone that was in plain sight. (laughs) (laughs) They definitely didn't lift floorboards. They talk about this ledger, and truthfully, guys, it's not a ledger like what you're thinking. It was a birthday list. So basically what you're saying is the ledger was a dead end. (laughs) What didn't really give us anything? I wouldn't say it's a dead end. I'm pretty sure that there's probably names on there that we can probably question those people, or hopefully OSBI is probably questioning those people. Yeah. But aside from the fact that it's not like a... Like a victim list or a, a potential future victim list or anything. From my understanding, there's some family members on that list. Mom, brother, people that I wouldn't think would be on your victim list, but who knows. On Wednesday, May 10th, there's services held for Brittany Brewer. And then that same day, the Webster's family attorney, Cameron Spraulding, turns over records pulled by a private investigator working for him that revealed 32 cell phones registered to the property. Most ended up being registered to Holly Tanette, L. McFadden, or Mayo, and then the rest were pretty much. So basically nothing really came out over those phones. But I know the count dropped significantly. It, it went did, from 32 like to like 16 or something like, or something like that. Like no, it even was lower a, than that. Oh, even lower? Like yeah. 7 or some, 9, something like that. Gotcha. I don't remember the exact number, but but basically way lower. Some of the things that are, I think, big items right now are the fact that they found a tripod in one of the rooms. Obviously, we know that they found chains. They found locks. They found different methods of bondage. What do we know about those chains and those locks? We know that the chains and locks were purchased on Wednesday. And we know that the murders had to have occurred between Saturday night, well, really Sunday morning, because Ivy was talking to her mom at about midnight, which would have been Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. So to our knowledge, there's been no communication with any of the girls and their families between that contact with Ashley Webster and Ivy Webster and then when they found the bodies. So that would mean that everybody was killed between early Sunday morning, and then Monday when they were found. Right. What do we know about the autopsies that have already been released? As most of you guys know, I know that the public really wants to know about these autopsies, and I don't blame everybody for wanting them to know that. Um, The families are very concerned about there being releases of the children. You know, it's their children. They know how their children would feel if these things were released, if they were alive today, and Plus, these are their babies. And so OSBI currently is actually saying that they filed a a motion to prevent the full 
autopsy release that will have all of the details. They've filed something to try to prevent those from being released for a while because they're wanting to get the investigation done before a lot of that stuff comes out. And I'm not sure what their purpose of that is, honestly, other than not wanting the public to know, which I think is garbage, truthfully. I I just want a high-level recap the autopsies. I don't want to go in great detail or I don't want to talk in any level of detail. Since we're going to release that as a separate episode, I just want to generalize like what have we found with the autopsies. So, so far we've received the summaries on the girls. We've also received a full autopsy on Holly and we have a summary on Jesse. We know that Holly was shot three times in the head. We know that one of those gunshots was at close range and that one of those gunshots was while she was laying on the ground. We also have an idea that Holly and Jesse's time of death is very close in proximity. We don't know whether the children that were killed are in close proximity to Holly and Jesse. So we don't know if Holly was alive after the kids were killed. We don't know that. We know that there is some abrasions on Holly that look like she was dragged. We know that there are some abrasions on her wrist that looks like she may have been restrained. We know that Jesse's self-inflicted gunshot wound was to his mouth, and it was one shot, and it took him out. And we also know that, at a minimum, he was dead no yeah. later than 5 a.m. Monday morning. Honestly, he could have possibly been killed between the time he contacted Bab, and I honestly think that he contacted Caitlin Bab just prior to killing himself. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.